What happens to us when our success is shaped by something bad that happened in early life? Of course, not every entrepreneur or successful leader has a backstory of trauma, but a surprising number do. For instance, in their research, UK Sport found multiple gold-winning Olympic athletes were highly likely to have experienced a traumatic event family breakup, death or illness, defining their childhood. In today's show, we're joined by Mike Skripnik, who was that successful entrepreneur who found himself facing a crisis of meaning in midlife. He found a new level of peace and purpose by confronting and working through his abuse. He now works with male leaders to take this step to creating a more whole future. Welcome to The Evolving Leader, the show born from the deep belief that we need more accountable, more human leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. I'm John Gomes. I'm Emma Sinclair. Emma, how are you feeling today? Today, I am feeling uh, feeling relaxed. I'm feeling quite connected. It's midweek, but I've had some good conversations, which uh, is inspiring for the rest of the week. And I'm also feeling very open uh, today for the conversation that we're going to have with our guests. I feel open and, um, yeah, reflective. So it's, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting feeling. I'm looking forward to this. Um, and because today we are going to chat with Mike Skripnik. Uh, Mike's a coach. He's an author. He's a business strategist and host of Unlimited Worth podcast. Uh, he's passionate about helping leaders to realise their capacity for success, happiness and love. He's published nine books, many articles, white papers and thought pieces. And he spent the last decade uh, giving a philanthropic legacy counselling. So, Mike, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? Uh, thank you. First of all, Jean and Emma for having me. And I'm feeling fantastic. <laughs> I feel, I feel great. My inner core, I'm in the heart of British Columbia, Canada right now, where um, the exterior uh, of, of our world is on fire and there's smoke everywhere and it's rather dark and gloomy, but I'm feeling quite centered today. Thank you. I forgot to ask how you were, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling really good, actually. Um, uh, I'm also feeling uh, a little bit not daunted, but I'm uh, in really interested to find out um, about Mike's work and particularly the, the topic of around trauma, because um, that's a, an issue that I think will um, capture the imagination of a lot of our listeners. So I'm really excited to hear more about that, but also probably a little bit of, you know, feeling a little bit challenged by that at, at my core. So, um, yeah, really excited to dig into that topic. Mike, I've got a question to kick us off, if that's okay. And I've got a, got a series of them, and we'll, we'll work around them. But my first question is, um, listening and reading a few things um, that you've created and curated, purpose is a really recurring, reoccurring theme in your work. And I wondered if we could start with your definition of purpose and how you've found that definition for yourself in your work. 
Emma, let me phrase, uh, frame that for you. Purpose is so critical. And in the world that I tend to, in, in the circles in the world that I've tended to uh, spend my time, uh, it is I'm surrounded with entrepreneurs, self-starters, self-made people, high performers, um, elite athletes, and you know, sometimes celebrities. In that world, the valleys and peaks are uh, fairly extreme. And without a sense of purpose moving through the valleys, uh, and they're not infrequent, <laughs> um, is next to impossible uh, to emerge with success uh, if you do not or lack purpose. And, and so from your core, that reason you wake up every day, that, that, that driving force that's beyond what people say lead with passion, right? Passion is an interesting com uh, word in itself. And the concept of passion being something that you're highly committed to and that you feel really good about and it drives you and energizes you. Well, at its core, passion is great, but passion leads people off the edge of a cliff. It um, drives people to abandon projects when they feel pa without passion, but your purpose is your North Star. It never leaves you. Purpose is what is critical to you. Uh, it's almost like breathing. It's the blood and oxygen that is running through your veins and through your body. And, and, and it's what, you, what moves you every day to you know, make sense of your life. Um, and so at our core, our purpose really is, you know, is it's kind of part of the meaning of life. It's, it's, it's why we exist at, for ourselves. And everybody derives what their sense of purpose is individually. Um, interestingly, I'm sure we all converge around some similar topics or themes, but nevertheless, we individualize our purpose, um, whereas you can get a room full of people and share a passion for some kind of project or enterprise. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because uh, sometimes people confuse the two and motivation or, or passion ebbs and flows in our lives. We all know that. And, um, you know, when, when you are, when it's ebbing <laughs> you don't suddenly um you know sort of neglect the things that matter to you so the two go hand in hand can, you, can we go step back a moment and and get a sense of your journey um where you started and how you've come to the place you are today in terms of the the, the things that matter most to you that that'd be great i'll i'll try to do a rewind fast forward moment you know um I emerged, I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, uh, I went to University of Calgary, kinesiology degree. Uh, I saw my path in pro sports working in the athletic therapy, sports medicine side of things. Um, I quickly realized that there weren't many opportunities for me in pro sports in Canada at the time, in that window of time, and my course altered. And from personal training, I ended up coaching the vice president of brokerage firm and investment firm, and ultimately he offered me a job. Um, that entrepreneurial spirit uh, was why he hired me and then drove me through a 22-year career in finance, in investment management and portfolio management. Uh, Emma referred to a decade of giving back philanthropically. That is something that from 2008 until 2018 uh, was core to my financial services business. It was my pivot in the financial crisis, sitting there in, a tra in traffic, 
in a September, third week of September in snow, um, in a beautiful new car, going to my beautiful new home, to my wonderful family, hating my life. And then hearing myself on the radio of a spot I just recorded earlier that day telling kind of the world or that community that um, Lehman Brothers went under. So I was here, bearer, the bearer of bad news and forever the grim reaper that next few months um, during the crisis. And I was just hating it. So I wanted to reposition my business to give back. And I just came up with, how do I give a million dollars back to charity every year? And and it wasn't really through my means. I was certainly concerned that the crisis, I was going to lose out everything at the same time everyone else was. Um, where I, what I realized is I had skills and expertise and knowledge that would help others. And so I applied that. And in the process, I learned how to construct a, an unconventional business of giving instead of hoarding capital in an industry that valued hoarding and uh, different different degrees of how we managed uh, relationships. And that opened up an entire uh, window and door and opportunities for me because of the coaching I sought out, because of the mentoring I looked for, and uh, the business I created within the industry that stood out and was um, a solid business. For me, at one point along the way, I decided that that wasn't enough. Um, I was looking for a bigger leverage. I always spoke with baby boomers on a regular basis, and they would share uh, all the things that they would have done differently after I had presented their plan and helped them see some things that they never, you know, they probably should have done 20 years earlier, but they didn't. And then they would spend another 90 minutes telling me all the things that they would have done differently in their lives and their business and how they would approach it. None of it had to do with more time in the office. None of it had to do with more work. It had a lot to do with more health, more family, more love, more giving. And I just was seeking more leverage. So I left the industry, sold my business, and went on to coaching. And coaching took me through uh, to the pandemic. And as we know, and one of my models, I was, you know, I, now I'm looking back, it looks like a dinosaur model, which was really. Um, live workshops and speaking to drive my customer base. <laughs> and that went to zero early in the pandemic. And for me, that began a bit of a downward spiral that early on I didn't see was a spiral down. Um, but it was an inevitability given that I just simply couldn't find a rhythm to uh, present high or premium high value training and coaching to high-level executives through the internet. Um, and in that period of time, it became a very frustrating um, year or two uh, that I spent in that kind of mindset and, and led me to a, a kind of an existential life crisis. That's, that's quite a roller coaster. <laughs> so can we, can we zone in on those two moments? Because I think, you know, what I'm hearing from this is that there were two kind of moments of crisis. One was the um, the the Lehman Brothers, the 2008 moment where you kind of pivoted and used your ingenuity to kind of rethink how you could contribute. And then as you came to the end of the next chapter, you had another crisis. There were two kind of moments of crisis. Can you, can you just kind of, because I think this is incredibly helpful for people to try and paint the picture about what that felt like um, and what assumptions were turned on their head for you in terms of how you had thought about things and, 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 and then flip those in your mind? Yes, it, 
if I were to summarize as crises, uh, the first was more of a a, a philosophical crisis. Um, I just I simply felt that I wasn't gaining purpose on a daily basis. I wasn't living a purposeful life within my business, although on the weekends and evenings I was volunteering, I was coaching, I was heavily involved with my family. And during the days I was in the, you know, the greed is good world. And it felt like there was a misalignment. So that crisis really was, um, you know, driven by the circumstances, but ultimately a, a commitment to align my purpose um, every day. And that is serving others to help them with whatever I know, whatever knowledge I had at the time. And I was younger, so I consider it knowledge. And I didn't know, quite know how to share it. Uh, you know, I hit 50 much later and uh, realized that there's some wisdom all of a sudden, which is the understanding of how to share that knowledge. Uh, that was different. But at least I, I gave it a shot. And I felt from that moment I was able to live in alignment. The second crisis was a little more. Sorry, could I, can I just pause? Sorry, could I of pause you on that no. one for a moment? Please, I, I want to try and pull apart the um, you know what preceded that crisis for a moment because one could look at it and go, well, the the circumstances kind of gave you the moment, you know, the out, as it were, to to rethink things. In the greed is good phase leading up to that, which you know, frankly, all of us are have been into one degree or another because yeah. that's the system. Was there, had, had this been brewing? Had you felt a growing sense of the disconnect between what you were doing at work and what you were doing outside of work up to that point? Or was it just like the moment where you went, oh, you know, how, yeah, no, how, no how question. that played out? What, what I was beginning to realize were the limits of what I, was, I had done to that point in my life, in my career. Uh, one limit was I was an expert in investing, yet... During the financial crisis, what I, I neglected to learn were the motivations of the people that I served, my customers, my clients. And that felt really challenging for me because here I was not understanding the reactions of people when their backs were against the wall. And really all it was because of, you know, maybe it was hubris, maybe whatever it was, um, it was my lack of inattention to the motivations that mattered to people the purpose they lived with. And so by ignoring that, I ended up in this circumstance where everything coming at me was a surprise. It wasn't all negative. Um, and, and then at the same time, I had surrounded myself with people that were, um, let's say, not carrying their weight and, and definitely negatively surprising me daily. <laughs> and so I had partners and other people around me. And at the same time, so, and I was in the midst of it. And you know, you have to shine the light on yourself and say part of it was me. You know, how did I put myself into that moment? And then how do I extricate myself going forward? And the alignment of purpose was basically a line in the sand moment where I basically said that everything I do will have to get to that, to that end result, that goal. And thus, my business has to change my day-to-day -day routine, my habits, everything has to change to align with that. How do I do it? And it had me seeking outside input from other people. And, you know, that was a, a really key part of that transition. Um, it wasn't fundamental. And it was a kind of a stepping stone to something more important and meaningful, basically a decade later. Okay.
So let's go to the second one. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> it's quite all right. I hope that satisfied. Um, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's very helpful. I, I think it's it's because these moments are incredibly um, pressured, and our emotional responses to them show as much as anything else what really is going on for us. So it's really helpful for for people listening into this to see how they relate to it from that perspective. Oh yeah. I mean, you got to think there's a little bit imposter syndrome too. I felt like I wasn't really being truthful because here I was in this beautiful home and a car and I could afford them, but we were just about going into what could have been a depression in some, I mean, I called my 90 year old grandmother and asked her, I said, you know, you are the only one I know whoever's lived through the depression. Can you tell me what that was like? You know, that's the conversation and the mind frame. And, you know, I went to, I was going to a silent auction, a big annual legal thing um, every year. And here we are thinking, I, I don't think I should bid or can bid on anything. I can't, I got to hunker down here because we might be heading downwards. That was the mindset at that time. So there was a lot of scarcity driving that uh, move as well. And so fear and scarcity were really, really high. But the challenge I faced was, which I learned recently in the last few years, was I was ill-prepared to handle it because my natural response, my um, immediate in instinct was to find another solution that wasn't the best solution either. And so looking fast-forwarding, I think it turned out quite well. Uh, and I stopped seeking relationships that were inside the industry, and I started investing in relationships investing in mentors because I look back and uh, most of my financial partners, my business partners, everybody have not been the right fit. Um, and somehow, some way when they went, they exploded, I went down with their ship too because I was so close. And, and that was my doing just as much as they're doing. And then going forward, I said, well, I'm not going to have any partners. I'm just going to hire good people to, to teach me how. And that phase went very well, but those relationships were purely transactional. And so fast forward to I, I kind of know how I begin to implement and I start a business um, in coaching and, and training and speaking and writing and doing workshops. And it suddenly goes to a, a, a standstill. And then I scramble because I'm like, I don't know how to do this digital marketing. I can't connect. I don't, you know, whatever. I didn't have the 100,000 person list. So I was kind of stuck there trying to figure it out. And 18 months into it, after serving my clients and helping them save their businesses and suddenly watching this attrition happen in my business, I basically ended up with my last client um, unceremoniously stop working with me. <laughs> and we, I was looking forward for the next year and they said, well, that's not going to fit for us. Um, we're done. And there I was, uh, a business coach helping others, you know, in their businesses. And I had no business. And that moment, uh, and at that moment as well, because of the attrition, um, I basically owed more people than I'd ever owed in my life. And for the first time, I couldn't pay anybody. And I just thought, well, you know, um, might be a better idea on one of my walks to, you know, decompress, um, to just huck myself into the river. At that time, it was, it was pretty nasty weather and the rivers were raging. And I thought that would be, you know, I could just call it quits. And, and that would be that. And... I spent the next 10 days, this was September of 2021, so it was fairly recent, um, considering those options and started to write down my pros and cons of doing so. And so that was the darkest period of time in my life that I'd ever experienced. And it scared the, you know, whatever out of me. Um, and I reached out for help uh, and had someone 
you know, throw me a life preserver. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's a pretty dark and scary place to have got to. Um, what, what was it that pulled you out? I, the, the sheet of pros and cons, uh, the pros were pretty simple. Uh, I had a pretty good insurance package and it wouldn't be affected by, you know, me stepping off the riverbank. Um, and, uh, my family, I could just write it off. And I, for the first time I understood what it meant to be so depressed that it seemed like a logical step. So on the pro side, it seemed like that would be reasonable. But on the con side, I looked at a few things. One, of course, my family, um, there's no way I had a right to whatever I was dealing with at the time, which I didn't understand fully at the moment. Um, I didn't have the right to do that and set my family up for a traumatic experience for the rest of their lives. I didn't have a right to do that to my kids. I didn't have a right to do it to my wife. They weren't deserving of what I was just about to consider. Uh, the other is I'm, I'm a kind of an optimist. <laughs> I, I, I really do want to see what that light at the end of the tunnel is. Like, I don't care if it's a train, it's a train, but I want to see what that is. So I, there, I always think that there's something a little better um, around the corner. And then the last thing for me was I was just simply, um, I was a pretty proficient swimmer. And you know, I don't think that uh, I'm a Canadian, so we didn't have, I didn't really consider effective means of ending it. Um, I considered ways that I may survive and it would really, really, really suck. <laughs> and so, and so uh, that, that, that was a deterrent in itself. Uh, so for those three reasons, I reached out to a friend of mine who I know, a good friend of mine. And uh, she was also a, psycholo a practicing psychologist. And, and I said, I just need your help. I need to talk. And then a day later we spoke and that was enough. And she is an excellent friend who both gave me love. I always, I was joked that she threw me a life preserver, but she's the kind of friend and the relationship we had. She also hit me over the head with it and dragged me uh, as, as well as um, supported me. And that set me on a path to healing that um, has been, you know, one of the most monumental steps of my life. And the healing process and where I ended up was had I been there, you know, 2008, those changes would have been much more profound. And I'll, I can explain that in a bit. I mean, there are two very key moments for personal moments in your life that have made significant you know, redirection in terms of your future and where that could take you you know you mentioned this last moments only a couple of years ago and and clearly you know your focus and determination in in doing something and learning from those experiences takes you somewhere what has the last two years taken you on what's the journey been the last two years so thank you. Let's consider what that launching pad looked like. Uh, what the key element was, was for me, I never ever wanted to return to that moment, you know, that darkness and, and or what the sequence of events that got me there. And I knew that I was as responsible as the circumstances. You know, there were a lot of catalysts in there, the pandemic and other things. But one of the key elements was I positioned myself there somehow, unwittingly in a lot of cases. A lot of people might say, it was a bunch of decisions you made. Well, I didn't make those decisions consciously. They just were instinct. So how did I get there? And for the biggest thing in my 
you know, at the time was, I know I have some challenges, something deeply embedded in my, my psyche. What is it? Um, and some of us know or consider that there is an elephant in the room. And, you know, for me, I knew exactly that it was highly likely it was an incident at 11 and a half when I was sexually abused by a, a, a very important leader in the community. And that it left an indelible mark that set me on a course in life, built instincts that are related to the trauma response that we build to save that young man. And it was those, it were th those instincts that were embedded into my, psych my neurology, my neuropsychology, um, that uh, became instinct, uh, you know, clearly not conscious. And every time certain circumstances, threats, or situations arose, I would immediately just gravitate into those instincts, and I didn't know what was happening. A big one for me was um, don't trust the good man. And you can imagine how challenging that is. I was a star athlete. I was a star mu uh, in music. I was a star academic. And so wherever men were involved, you know, the band leader, the coach, you know, I was never the MVP. I was never the, the head of the band. Even if I was the best on the team or best in the band, it didn't matter because there was some friction that I created unknowingly or uh, sent off a vibe or whatever it was. And then that followed me into my professional career. So every partner, and I alluded to that earlier, every partner, every business partner, every dealings I had with men were never the best men in the room. They were exciting. They were accomplished. They were entrepreneurs, but they had flaws. They were deeply, deeply flawed people. And when a crisis came, as they always do, um, those crises brought out the worst in them. And I always was close. And so in my proximity, the fallout always hit me. And I'm not alleviating my blame for some of the circumstances, but if I, had I never been in the room without, with, had I been in the room with the good men, the ones in the corner office that were good people that were always there that I just never gravitated to, um, those crises would have unfolded differently, right? And, you know, mine were usually major financial loss, need for transition, move on, and it repeated multiple times. So fast forward, I see a, a therapist, we do EMDR, we get to the heart of that trauma, remove all the deeply seated emotional connection to these patterns that had been wired into me and that I've been reliving over and over and over again for 40 years, and getting to the heart of what those were, suddenly revealed when the emotional part of that, of those, you know, how those reactions work, how those instincts get triggered, and the instincts themselves, those patterns, when I separated them, I could see them. And then, you know, it was, it was a bit challenging. It was a bit humbling. You know, you look at what you've been doing for 40 years. It's kind of like walking around with chocolate on your shirt, <laughs> you know, and no one told you. Um, you know, I had that. I, there were things I had been doing for 40 years and no one told me. Uh, and, and the reason is, and this is where my commitment to the last couple of years has been, is to help leaders, people in leadership or in successful or perceived to be a success, um, we tend to get the benefit of the doubt. Um, people do not analyze what our shortcomings are. They only look at what we've done well. We tend to hide those shortcomings, those instincts, those negative patterns uh, extremely well at all costs. We have financial buffers, we have people buffers, we have business buffers, and we have life habits because we're maybe at a certain position. There's not a lot of people around us. 
Um, we might be at the top of whatever we're doing. And thus, um, we're able to keep our secrets. And my secret nearly killed me. And so I was able to hold on to these secrets and hold on to these instincts, whether I liked it or not, until such time that I had to deal with them. And once I began to deal with them, I realized, you know, leaders are in desperate need. And not just leaders. I mean, four out of five suicides between ages of 30 and 60-year-olds in North America are men. Okay, so the bandwidth of middle-aged humans in North America who kill themselves um, are, are pre predominantly men. And that's a problem. And now I understand why. It was either the trauma that they experienced that they can't outrun or the crisis that, create, that was created because the instincts that they never unwired. And though either way, it's about trauma. It's about the response we have to a negative experience or experiences in our lives. And it's rooted in our childhood. It's rooted in our developmental years because our brains are very adept at placing negative experiences and saying, never do that again. And then not telling us about it. <laughs> you know, it's like you have this relationship with your brain. You have your conscious and your subconscious. And in your subconscious, it's like, if we just don't tell him and we wire this in, he won't screw it up when it has to be triggered, when it has to happen, because he has to survive, right? He has to pass on his genes. In order to do that, he can't crumble in the, in the worst possible moment. So there's a flip side to this, kind of like the, the, the impact of trauma, and it can drive a lot of people to succeed in a weird sort of way. Um, Not in a weird way at all, John, actually, well, if, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. There are so many qualities that also emerged from the independence, the driving force, the like looking ahead instead of worrying about the, like all this stuff um, were very good and driving forces of part of my successes in life. Um, the, the negatives, unfortunately, which is strange, is how deeply rooted and subconsciously these things took hold. And, you know, you scratch your head and go, why, why did that one, why did that partner suddenly why did this happen again? Why did this happen again? And then, you know, then you ask your network, you're like, my wife, like I asked Sherry, I go, just promise me to never, I can never have another partner again. <laughs> right? She goes, I'm, I'm there for you. And, and, and yet when I hired all these mentors and coaches, um, it was transactional. So I didn't get what I needed out of it. I didn't get the love and the support. They were transactional relationships. I got the mentorship from good people. Um, so I was close, but I didn't understand it then. Now I understand it. And what's interesting is those negative or bad people just don't want to be part of your life anymore. Um, it is so such a deeply, um, I don't dabble in metaphysical, but I think on a quantum physics thing, like we, we do have an energy that we push out. And I was always saying that I was, I was always connecting with people at their stuff, um, which is the matter that we have, right? And after, you know, this stuff rose to the surface from my subconscious to my conscious, what I realize is that the space in between, which we are mostly space in between stuff, not stuff, that has now opened up and now that's where I interact with people. And when we share our space, we gravitate to each other or to like people. And so instead of like, how do I identify these bad people or not the good people and they don't, they don't gravitate any longer. So it's actually not even about whether I filter them, it's about this now in my consciousness um, is allowing me to only participate with people who have good intention or good for me. 
So I'm interested in your experiences of working with entrepreneurs um, who are in that kind of weird uh, space between risk and the thrill of you know the opportunity and so on. And uh, how many of those people do you see um, with some origin story in their character um, being trauma? Because um, the thing I was going to just sort of fold into this was an observation that there's quite a lot of research showing that high achievers in lots of different fields actually have trauma as you know a component of what's driven them forward so they have that desire to keep on proving that they're good enough i mean in in the british olympic system one piece of research showed that the people had won multiple gold medals had the highest incidence of family breakup or you know some trauma around you know a death of a sibling or something like that they were five or six times more likely to be you know, in that high category of sustainable achievement than others. So I was interested to see what you, you'd seen there with entrepreneurs. I, the stats bear it out. You're, you know, it, the evidence is there. Not only that, but if you think of entrepreneurs, any leader, uh, 70% of leaders um, are somehow falling short of being good leaders. They consider themselves to be ineffective. Um, or their or their employees consider them to be ineffective, and that stat would bear out the incidence of trauma, and and trauma takes all kinds of shapes and forms. Like mine was sexual abuse, but there was physical abuse. There's my parents never hugged me. There was I witnessed something, an accident, you know, whatever it is. Or my mother was an alcoholic and had a major crisis while I was in her womb. You know, it starts from you know uh, twelve weeks on. We're we're not we're not. <laughs> but just because we weren't in this world doesn't mean we weren't affected by trauma. Um, these things are deeply physio physiological. And when you recognize that that many leaders are moving forward unaware, that's the key is they're unaware of these challenges that they may admit them on surface. Like I may have admitted it, although I kept the secret pretty quiet. Um, I may have admitted in a couple occasions throughout my life what my trauma was. Um, and I did not understand that it formed me, right? I had no understanding that it had an impact in how I was formed. And that's the challenge is we may admit, okay, I came from a broken home or my parents were this and I had this challenge to me and this is why I've succeeded, which is driving forward, putting things behind me, you know, win at all costs, whatever that mindset became. But they haven't acknowledged that the shortcomings, the sabotages, the challenges, the, the circuitous route they may have taken to that success, those things were influenced heavily by those instincts that were created during the trauma response. And, and that's one of the key elements because you can see a lot of successful leaders and they'll drive a business forward. They'll have success. A lot of failings either happen in one's business or one's personal life. Um, and then they all bleed over to the other side. But I found that um, in my interviews and all the men I've connected with in the last couple of years, it's something is really going wrong. And in business, maybe that was where they could control things. And so they're messing up their life. They had addiction problems. They maybe abused their spouses. They were philandered, whatever it was. Um, but their business went all right. And then except for when this happens, my business is ripping. It's doing great, right? 
however, I can't keep staff, or I always come to blows with so-and-so, or um, I always blow up a relationship, or every time we do a deal, it doesn't work out, you know? Like, there's these little things that are reminders, and if you look back, they're actually going to be the same thing. The same situation has arisen over and over and over again, and it's that repetition, those moments where you made a decision that you felt was what was needed at the time, you look back and you go, um, I made the wrong decision relative to that circumstance because our instincts are wired to protect us in nature, not in an urban modern society. So our in instinctual responses are often incongruent with business life or regular life. So what we need to survive in the wild is got, not what we need to survive in a social environment, right, in a work environment. And when we keep repeating, that's when, and so when I work with leaders, you know, I work with many CEOs, many leaders, and they'll just say, you know, how come I'm an asshole? <laughs> like I, I do this and I do great and I work hard and I, I wake up every day to get these people going, you know, the, the, these people being their employees and the people around them. Um, but every time I'm in this moment, it's like I'm, I'm just, I can't turn it off. I'm an asshole. Why does that happen? Or, you know, or why do they perceive me to be that? Or why can't I trust other people? And it's not about whether you can trust other people. It's what you're sending off, that instinct in that moment. And so when leaders are in that stuck moment, I used to say, here's some strategies, here's some tactics, here's some skills. Go to it and forget them. Just keep on driving. Now, in the last couple of years, what I do is say, I think there's something more. <laughs> and this is not the comfortable conversation that people have on emotional intelligence or social emotional learning is often executives, leaders, or even frontline workers are taught skills, tactics, and strategies to deal with these emotional things. What I tend to do now and, and will at all costs, quite frankly, will say, well, there's something deeper. What is it? I don't need to know. You don't have to share with me what that is, but I'm going to guess if you investigate, you know, from zero to 20 years old, you're going to find moments that were negative that created a trauma response. And that's probably part of what's going on today at 50 years old or 40 years old. And that's part of what you're sabotaging all the time. And then my encouragement is, is there are ways to dig into that and to get help with a therapist that will help you find that and position this as a tool for success and how to elevate, not um, as a shortcoming, which is one of the, and not, and quite frankly, in a matter of fact way. In other words, it's not a big orchestrated challenge. It's not a big secret, although um, I think discretion is critical, um, but it's not a personal secret any longer because it becomes your story. And when it becomes your story and the conversation is normalized around it and therapy becomes a normalized, um, just like hiring a business coach, hire a therapy to have a mind coach. Uh, in that way, um, then it becomes a, a, an improvement in one's life, a way to elevate your performance and a way to fill those gaps. So the work around leadership digs in deeper where most people feel ill-equipped or quite frankly, you know, it was interesting, if I may, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling right at this moment. But in my investment management business for the last decade trying to help people give, people, give money away, it was all about estate planning. Right. I mean, that's the bigger picture is how do you give in your will? And there were a lot of conversations around mortality. 
and I was really good at it. A lot of people are very poor at it. In fact, most advisors do not want to talk to their clients about death. And my comfort there in terms of normalizing that conversation was very strong. Stepping forward, most people do not want to talk about other people's uh, challenges, their abuse, their trauma, their mental or emotional issues. We don't know. We can't understand how to deal with people that we can't see physical problems with, right? So we leave it alone, and we tend to just stiffer up, stiff up or lift it. And men are terrible at this. <laughs> we're at, we're actually excellent at it. We're excellent at just driving forward and you know suck it up. We're gonna just move forward. Can't talk about this stuff. Um, but I find that when we do get into that open space, make it comfortable making a normal conversation, a typical conversation, we can get to some understanding. And if anything, we can get to the introspection. Um, it takes courage because most organizations, they'd be like, well, if I know they had, if, if anyone knew I had an emotional challenge, I would lose my job. I mean, think about it. Think of it air, in, in airlines, in finance, in business, like, you know, any number of executives out there would be just mortified and worry that they would lose their jobs because of, um, you know, some kind of emotional challenge. But no one's worried that if they had a heart attack, a stroke, or a broken leg, um, that it would cost them their job. All of which can be remedied fairly simple. Can we um, perhaps get a, a sense of the kind of responses that people have to trauma um the kind of archetypes because the the way in which you responded to it and to protect yourself was um one kind of um instinctive mechanism which is to almost please the bully or to side with the, the you know the, the person who actually caused the you know or the you know the person that kind of represents the threat in the first place as opposed to moving away from it which is a common um, kind of uh, unconscious move what else are you seeing people doing in terms of how they protect themselves with trauma yes of course mine mine was really where I would just gravitate to people with the that weren't like my abuser. My abuser was the, you know, the pillar of the community. He was the handsome, good man, veteran, armed, decorated pilot, you know, leader of boys. And the wife was on the, the face of it, of my, <laughs> right? On the face of it. Well, yeah. and, and then abuser of boys. Um, so he looked great. So I chose men that I could see their. I call it seeing their daggers, right? They had their daggers out, and I could see the danger, and I would think I could mitigate it, but that was not possible. Often the way trauma manifests, trauma response, I want to make sure that it's clear. Negative situations create a trauma response, right? So the negative situations can vary for everybody. And one negative situation for me might not create that response and it will create it in someone else. The response, trauma itself, is a physiological and neurological response to danger that we perceive that we must learn how to protect ourselves or avoid in the future. Once we've had that moment, often they, they segregates into two ways, either something that would be considered hypervigilance. It's a way our, our brain moves into hypervigilance or it moves into dissociation. Um, hypervigilance can be things like I had, like if, 
if this, then this. It would be always a reactionary. Um, it would be instinctual. I wouldn't know that was the behavior, but that was what was going on. Um, you always find it, <laughs> almost always, find it with what you would call micromanagers, control freaks. Um, they're very hypervigilant. Like that's a very clear case of you've got something going on. Dissociation is a little different because it's the kind of people that you almost look like they flip. Um, they're they're friendly and nice, and then they're the asshole, right? Then then they're in they're in that tough space, um, or their dissociation is also um, connected to high risk taking, which is interesting because there's a big benefit and reward in in entrepreneurism and business um, for those who risk, who are willing to risk, and often those who risk and it works out look like rock stars, but they still have these shortcomings because they're willing to bet everything on, on it all the time, regardless of the 10 people, the 20 people, or the 1,000 people they suddenly have hired underneath them. And so those people's lives are all in jeopardy, their financial, personal lives, because of that risk taking. So they manifest in those two ways, ultimately. Um, and then mul multitudes, there's a big spectrum of how we behave in that. So hypervigilance, one being, you know, hyper-responsive, controlling, you know, act. It was if this, then that. And then dissociation is often uh, also the other piece. I um, spent some time listening to your Unlimited Worth podcast and a couple of the conversations that, uh, you know, that you've managed to have with men. And um, I was really moved to hear people talking so openly so um frankly and so honestly to enable others to also kind of hear that story and, and learn from that story and my question comes to this place of curiosity around conversations and really listening and and enabling people to have a use the word space to have a conversation how do you enable that for people what is it that people need in that space? It's a massive question, but... You know, I, it's, I, think, I think many people can learn how to do it, and, and many people do it innately. Um, I, I find that maybe I do it innately. However, I've learned some really key elements to that. Um, and you're right. Uh, Emma, one of the interesting things, this is the little-known secret about men that women will eventually find out, and that is once you get men talking about their most deepest concerning challenges in a private room where they're comfortable, um, they don't stop talking. <laughs> so, so women are like, I can, I can never get my husband to tell me all these things about, guess what? They will. They'll talk nonstop and we, we always go over time. But how it happens is it requires a number of things. One is um, the setting has to be perceived it doesn't even have to really be that, although that's the setting I always set up, um, as risk-free. Those two words matter a lot. There's, you often hear um, a safe environment. You know, um, we create a, a safe, a comfort, safe, safe environment for you. Men generally, just by our nature, don't feel unsafe. We often don't perceive 90% of the situations we are in as something that is a threat to our safety. But we do perceive risk. Risk of loss, risk of you know, imposition of others on us, risk of losing our stuff, being, having things taken away from us. Like we, we really do, we are really risk sensitive and perceive it in all settings. 
but we rarely view safety as our problem. So I don't create safe spaces. I create risk-free rooms or, or communities. Then they need a leader. It's required that someone takes ownership in a plain-spoken way to discuss their biggest shortcomings. right? And not in a self-deprecating way, although that is largely my approach, um, but in a plain matter of fact, this is what happened. And here is what I've learned. This created this unknowingly. It wasn't always my fault. It's not always your fault. But you own fixing it. And how do you do that? So simple mechanisms to steps that are about disclosure and then creating in that risk-free zone no requirement whatsoever to talk about it. <laughs> Right, I'm not. I don't put. I don't. There's no couch in my office. Uh, that's not my. Uh, in the boardroom that I I'm in, you know, the moment isn't between me and them and everybody else. It's between them, one person that they know, love, and trust, or trust that loves them, and one therapist. That's it. And if, at that urging, it becomes very simple. So people suddenly are at ease. They are, well, I don't, you mean I don't have to talk about my stuff? You don't have to. Interestingly, though, um, there's a lot of disclosure that happens in the group setting um, that will surprise pretty much anyone who has never been part of it. And, but through that, it's a risk-free environment, a plain-spoken you know, explanation of this was me. And I believe it does take a bit of a leadership understanding and then understand in a language or speak in a language of the room. I work both in boardrooms and with frontline workers. You know, and I do know the I know how to speak in boardroom <laughs> or C suite talk. I'm not I'm comfortable there. I'm comfortable with athletes, I'm comfortable comfortable with entertainers, but I'm also comfortable with frontline workers. And so if I were going to explain how the neurological responses work the default modes and our emotional modes that are triggered to either put us into hypervigilance or dissociation. If I talk to CEOs, it might be at a different explanation. I talk to, you know, mechanics and, you know, garbage truck drivers, which I have. Um, I talk in terms of the sensors on a car. You know, one is an automatic and one is controlled by other things. And so they understand that in a different language. So it's, you know, the presenter needs to understand the language of the people in the room. Friends, if you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, I encourage you to order a copy of John's new book, Leading in a Non-Linear World, which provides a new understanding of mindset and how to build it in order to thrive in a more uncertain future. It's available online at all major retailers, and there's a link in the show notes. Um. How do we get more men comfortable having conversations in a business setting? I'm not saying we go to a level of trauma, but just out of interest. You know, how do we get how do we get them speaking? Well, m- more opportunities where people like you and Jean share, um, you know, a voice like mine. Um, you know, more more ubiquity in terms of the conversation. Uh, generally around the issue, which I think is better than it ever has been post-pandemic. I think there's more willingness, more openness to diving in and fixing some of those things. We spent so much introspection, time of introspection. 
uh, tying you know CEOs down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is still challenging. My uh, talks, my corporate training, are still um, branded as leadership and opportunities for growth. Uh, they are not. They're mental. I'm a mental health advocate or mental wellness advocate, right? Presented by a mental health well, wellness advocate, but it's neurological secrets to success. And I don't know how we avoid that for this reason and this reason maybe alone is that anyone coming to a mic event um, shouldn't look around the room before they get there or as they're arriving and wonder who's traumatized and who's got what, right? Um, and that is going to create a risk, a perception of risk that no one wants to be part of. Uh, how we get between that branding, it's a bit of a bait and switch and I don't like that at all, quite frankly. Uh, but it, it seems to be one of the requirements because you can't convince people they're in a risk-free room until they're in the risk-free room. And and they got to get the room or in the conversation. And that's one of the biggest challenges for sure because a lot of people who have the most, I mean, I took 40 years, <laughs> 30 years consciously saying, I don't need help, I'm good, I'm a success. Um, so I couldn't be convinced that I was challenged until I decided to kill myself. So, you know, that's a that's a big we can't wait for those crises. I can only imagine had at 20 years old had I solved some of these challenges, had I rewired um how amazing. Like I've had a pretty dang good life. Like it's been great um with moments of crisis, uh, but generally like by all accounts it's been an extraordinary life thus far and um just to think of how much better it may have been. So as we come to the end of our time together, can we just dig into one kind of final topic, which is yes, please. How, how's this kind of playing forward for you in, in the next you know, five, 10 years? Because um, hopefully we're normalizing more of these kind of issues that sit beneath the waters that we've, you know, we can kind of ignore by being busy and getting on with external measures of success. Um, do, do you see with the kind of generational changes that it'll be, We'll be able to not wait for forty years. We might be able to to get into these topics, you know, in early career um, and and head them off long before and, and move perhaps into post traumatic growth immediately, as opposed to you know sort of waiting until we, we we arrive at the crisis. How do you see the world changing from that perspective? There are there are some very significant challenges and opportunities. Uh, the the youth of today uh, have been, and I say in this in a, in a positive way, have been programmed to be more open and accepting um, and more willing to be emotional and be in that emotional space. The 18 to 25-year-old man today is not. Uh, they're, they're feeling isolated. The result of the pandemic and just social media in general have created an isolated generation of men. And Richard Reeves is not wrong in all of this. And Professor G is not wrong in all of this. Um, they're dead on uh, that, that little bandwidth. But getting those men who are um, struggling with being a, a boy to a man, um, going through that ritual of becoming a man, um, when some of the typical rituals aren't, aren't available anymore and they're isolated in social media, uh, has never been more difficult. They're more open than ever, but it's never been more difficult to reach them. Secondly, 
there's our gen, uh, my generation, let's just call it my, our Gen X, the Gen X crew. And the Gen X crew has the best ability because we create culture, we create music, we set the tone for sport, we set the tone at leadership. We have the ability to change the way men are accepted into the world, in business, in life. Um, we can change that tone. So my work with leaders is critical in changing the mentality, the approach um, to that and creating an opportunity for these younger men to grow into that. Um, there's no nothing will ever replace getting to both groups and speaking to them en masse. That is one of the key messages. Ubiquity isn't possible if you don't do that. However, changing leadership mental uh, framework around mental health and mental wellness and having that create that risk-free environment for men to come into um, that you can balance, suck it up, and get help. You know, once you get help, you better suck it up. <laughs> like there is the other side of it. Like it isn't, it isn't time to dwell and sit on, you know, okay, well, I'm, I've, I've been trauma. Like you can't sit in that pool of misery. Uh, it's time once you've got the tools and you've worked on yourself, it's time to move forward. Um, so gathering those two ends, I think, are key. Um, and acknowledging that there's a huge challenge in the 18 to 25 range right now with men in North America in particular, I know worldwide probably. My efforts, um, I think, are become insidious a bit. Um, I'm, I both work in speaking, leadership, training, but I also work with clients internally in their businesses. I'm presently in-house quite a bit with a company that um, I'm, I'm helping at the CEO level and individually as time progresses to create a culture uh, of acceptance that um, there are performance enhancers and one is seeking mental health and mental wellness support through therapy um, and identifying where those opportunities are. So it's about getting right into the companies and then setting a tone and hopefully seeing that ripple effect in the community. Well, that, that's a, a great place to, to kind of bring our conversation to an end. I, I think I, well, I've definitely found this to be a very powerful conversation and I hope it's, uh, it's very helpful to our listeners. Mike, how can people, I mean, we'll put this in the show notes, but how can people get hold of you and learn more about your work? I want to thank you, Jean and Emma, for creating a platform and wanting, uh, willingly digging into this topic today. I really appreciate it. Uh, people can find me at uh, mikescriptnick.com, which is my business side, but really where people should spend their time looking is unlimitedworth.org. Um, our podcast, our men's group, everything you would need to learn about and connect with people and ideas that fit this and help you. Uh, are there and I can be connected with on LinkedIn. It's my social media platform that I lean into the most. And if you're, um, if you're feeling that, you know, this might be helpful to you, but you're a bit doubtful or concerned, what would you plant in people's minds as a way to help them think about making the next step towards um, helping them with, with deep-seated trauma? I know it's bold and I'd, I, I really uh, reach out to me uh, through LinkedIn. And tell me you heard the podcast like that. I'm very comfortable with that. I'm very happy to accommodate that. Um, secondly, confide in someone you love, trust, and can find comfort with uh, about what it could possibly be because we all understand that there's an elephant in the room. We just, we might not know the depth of it. Excellent. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. 
and um, we wish you well in your work. It's an important contribution you're making to society and moving the world forward. So folks, remember, the world is evolving. Are you?